Maybe seat it. Glad that you are here this morning. If you would like to borrow a Bible to follow along with us, raise your hand and the ushers will bring you a Bible. And once you're done with it, after the service, just leave it in the pew and we will pick it up. Just keep your hands up. The ushers see you. They'll bring you a Bible. Most of you are familiar with the idea of a teaching hospital. Well, we are a teaching church, and one of the areas we train people in is to be future pastors, missionaries, and church planters. And one of the venues we equip them in is by allowing them to preach the Word of God here on Sunday morning. It's intentional and set up that I do not preach every week so that others within our congregation uh, are given the opportunity to study the Word of God and preach in order to build you up in your faith. This morning, you're going to hear from one of our pastoral residents, Steve Bishop. Steve has been with us for a few years, and he currently helps oversee and implement our ethos communities. He's a graduate of Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, and he is married to Jennifer, who is a very multi-talented woman of God, and, and they make a great couple together in ministry and in life. And Steve and Jennifer are expecting their first child in the coming days. And I've really learned a lot from Steve. Uh, he's a very man, a man of God who has encouraged me. He listens. He gives uh, good input. And, and he really has a heart for the Lord. And I'm, I'm very excited that he gets to come up here and share with you. And I know that you'll be blessed in hearing the word from Steve. So Steve, come on up, buddy. Well, I just want to begin by asking a question. How many of you have ever met a drifter? Um, how many of you have ever met someone who just seems to move around from place to place, kind of staying long enough to have fun, but never long enough to establish real roots? See, to me, drifters are really interesting people. See, from all outward appearances, they, they seem to have a happy life, and they're experiencing life to the fullest, and, and many of them have hitchhiked across the country, and they've seen things that, that all of us would love to see. And many of them, uh, no doubt, have or wish that they had attended Woodstock, right? And, and, they're, and they're all probably Bob Dylan fans, and, and, and many of them probably have at some point ridden in a Volkswagen bus. And, and Urban Dictionary defines a drifter as a person with no real place to call their home. And I've known a number of drifters in my life. And one of the things that I've noticed about them is that they really don't have anything tying them down. They don't have any significant responsibilities or relationships that they care enough about to stay in one place at one time. And so they drift. But as I was thinking about this idea of drifting, it occurred to me that, that this isn't the only way to describe a drifter. See, drifters aren't just people who never settle down. Drifters are also, there's a kind of unintentional drifting that takes place. And unintentional drifting is that slow, often unnoticed drifting from one place to the other. It's that experience of starting down a certain path and then eventually ending up so far away from where you'd hoped to be. 
And so drifters aren't just people who never settle down. They're, they're people who slowly and gradually lose their way. And so they're walking a certain path or they're living a certain life, and then eventually they find that they've moved so far away from where they'd hoped to be. And this is the kind of drifting that we're all familiar with. If you play golf, it's the kind of drifting that happens when you play golf, right? It's, that, it's when your ball just kind of sails off in the wrong direction. And that describes so many of our lives. It's the kind of drifting that takes place when you commit yourself to a certain workout routine. It's that experience that happens between January and March, right? When January, you set out, and you're working out four or five times a week. And then by March, you just find yourself right back into that, that, that comfy cushion on the couch. And it's that experience that happens uh, in relationships. It happens when, because of circumstances and time and values, you start drifting away from friends. And this kind of drifting happens not so much because you don't have anything tying you down, but it's because of neglect. You just let other things get in the way. And the interesting thing is, is that, that churches have this kind of propensity to drift. Churches can unintentionally drift from their core commitments. They can be heading down a certain path. They can be living a certain life. They can be on mission for God. And then they're confronted with a certain cultural wave or, or, or they're influenced externally by something or, or, or they let their internal impulses get the best of them and then they slowly but gradually lose, lose track of that mission. And they find themselves going in a dangerous direction. And churches can, they can experience a drift in their beliefs. And the term that we call this is doctrinal heresy. If they're not careful, churches can slowly drift in the direction of believing things about God or believing things about the Bible or believing things about the gospel that are wrong. And churches can drift in their practices. And this is the term that we might call practical heresy. It's where churches slowly drift from living in light of the beliefs that they say that they, that they hold to. And so they start moving in that direction of hypocrisy or they start moving in that direction of compromise. And this isn't just a corporate concern, is it? Each of us individually faces the same danger. As Christians, we face the temptation to, to move away from true beliefs about God to heretical beliefs. And, and as, as Christians, we face the danger of, of drifting into wrong living. And if we're not careful, we can slowly start justifying behaviors that are contrary to God's word. And so the question that we're left with this morning is how do we individually and corporately guard ourselves against drifting? How do we make sure we continue growing and maturing in our understanding of who God is? And how do we continue growing and maturing and understanding how God wants us to live? And I think if we're going to prevent ourselves from drifting, if we're going to stay the course as a church, then we need to have a sturdy anchor. We need to have, we need to have something that, that keeps us on track. And over the course of this year, we're taking some time to, uh, you know, we've been, we, uh, the way that we do things here is that we, that we just work through books of the Bible. And, and over the course of this year, we're pausing at certain points to reflect on the heart of our church. 
And when we talk about the heart of our church, we've been using this language of ethos. And ethos is it's simply the culture and character of our church. It's the blood that pumps through our veins. It's the air that we breathe. And, and so in some sense, our ethos is, is similar to all, every church around the world. But, but then there's, there's another sense in which it's specific to our local church. It's who we are, but it's also who we want to be. And so part of our ethos that we're going to look at this morning is, is our anchor. And our anchor, it keeps us on the right path. It keeps us going in the right direction. It grounds us, and it keeps us from drifting. And so what we've called our anchor as a church is humble orthodoxy. And so as we gather together on Sunday morning, and as we gather together corporately to try to carry out God's mission here, we have as our anchor a humble orthodoxy. And so what I want to do with the rest of our time today is, is unpack this part of our ethos. And in order to do that, I want to just consider three questions this morning. And as we work through these questions, I'm going to spend most of my time in Ephesians chapter 4, uh, verses 11 through 16. So if you have your Bible, uh, go ahead and join me with me as I read Ephesians 4, 11 to 16. Here's what the Apostle Paul writes. He says, And he, meaning Jesus, gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. And as a result, we're no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, and according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. And so the first question that I want us to consider this morning in, in regards to this humble orthodoxy is, is, what is it? What do we mean by humble orthodoxy? And admittedly, orthodoxy itself is a scary word. Uh, I don't know about you, but for me it conjures up images of old, dusty, complicated theology. Uh, so maybe some of you, when you think of orthodoxy, you think of big, boring books uh, filled with technical language. And in fact, orthodoxy also has this, it has this aura of, of being all theory, but completely devoid of relevance to real life. And as much as, this, uh, as, as some of us cringe at the word, orthodoxy should be something with which we're all familiar this is what one author says about orthodoxy. He says, the word orthodoxy literally means right opinion. In the context of the Christian faith, orthodoxy is, he says, it's shorthand for getting your thoughts or opinions about God right. And so it's teaching and beliefs based on the established, proven, cherished truths of the faith. So these are the truths that don't budge. And so in a sense, what we mean by orthodoxy is the truth that's revealed to us in God's word. And so specifically when we talk about it, we're talking about such truths as the nature of God. We're talking about the gospel. We're talking about the human condition. And it's these big, non-negotiable truths that unite us as Christians. And it's these truths that we cherish concerning who God is and concerning what he's done for us. And it's, 
And it's what the Bible refers to as the faith. And so many of you might remember um, a while back we, did a, we went through the New Testament book of Jude. And what we discovered is that, that we're called to contend earnestly for the faith. We're, we're called to contend earnestly for the faith. That's orthodoxy. But when we're talking about our anchor being humble orthodoxy, we aren't just talking about orthodoxy. We aren't just talking about these cherished truths. Instead, we're talking about the way that we hold these truths. It's, it's, it's a disposition. And so we might say, uh, you know, and this is, what, this is kind of where, where I think orthodoxy goes wrong. The, the reason I feel like the, the orthodoxy has so many negative connotations to it, it's not that it's a boring word. It's not... It's not that it's just, it's just totally dull. It's, it's actually quite exciting. And it's not that orthodoxy is a super intellectual word. It's actually very, very practical. And, and it has a lot to do with your life. You know, the reason that, that orthodoxy is, is often just kind of misconstrued is, is because it's something that, 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 that when people have... It's the, it's the way that people have held orthodoxy. It's the way that people have held to these orthodox beliefs. And so we might say something like, so-and-so has a cold orthodoxy. And that means that they're kind of holding to these truths in a very cerebral, intellectual way. But it isn't something that's, that's impacting their life. It's something that they're giving a thumbs up to intellectually when they say, you know, what do you believe? And they'll say, well, I'm just kind of an orthodox guy, you know. Um, but it's not, that's not something that impacts their life. Or we might say something like, so-and-so has a rigid orthodoxy. And what we mean is that this person is holding on to these beliefs in such a rigid, narrow way that it makes others who don't have such a rigid view feel excluded or feel condemned. And it makes others feel like they can't enter into dialogue with this person for fear of being judged. But what we're hoping for as a church is not that we'd have a cold orthodoxy. It's not that we'd have a rigid orthodoxy. It's that, it's that we'd have a humble orthodoxy. It's a way of holding these truths. It's a disposition, and, and we don't want to be a group of people who, say, who only say that we're Orthodox Christians, right? Uh, we want to be people who actually live Orthodoxy. We want to be people who allow that Orthodoxy that we say we believe to penetrate our hearts and to change the way that we live. We want these truths to grip us. We want, to, we want them to, to make us shout for joy. And we want these truths to be so captivating to us that, that we long to gently and lovingly share them with others. And this is kind of a, a way that I can, uh, I've found that we can easily look at this, is we can approach the truths passed down to us in Scripture in a number of ways. And one way we can approach Scripture is by standing over it. So the person who w w might approach God's Word this way, they, they look at it in judgment. And this is the person who reads Scripture and 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 dismisses it immediately because they disagree with it, or they don't like what it means for their life. This is the person who loves his sexual freedom, so that when he reads the Bible's sexual ethics, he dismisses them as outdated. Or this is the person who's exposed to the Bible's teaching about masculinity and femininity, and they scoff at it as being oppressive. So we can stand over it, or another way to approach it is that we can stand next to it. And the person who approaches the word this way, they, they use it to defend predetermined conclusions. And so they use it as a tool to convince others of the conviction, convictions that they've developed on their own. 
And one way that people can do this is, is they can be passionate about healthy eating, right? Well, they, they can only eat vegetarian foods. And, and then they, they, they start looking, you know, for things to, to prove that. And so they look to the Bible and they look to the Old Testament. And they argue for a specific diet. And the problem with that is that, that the Bible doesn't prescribe a specific diet. And there are many good reasons for eating healthfully. But one of them is not because God has told you to eat this way. This is using the Bible to defend, to defend predetermined conclusions. And that's not the way that we want to approach God's word. Rather, rather than standing over it, or rather than standing next to it, we want to stand under it as a church. We want to be a group of people who allow God's word to have authority in our lives. We want to be a group of people who humble ourselves under God's inerrant word. We want to allow it to transform us. And, and this is what we mean by humble orthodoxy. It's a way of approaching God's word. It's a disposition that says, God, what does your word say? And, and God, what does that mean for how I should live? And so humble orthodoxy is it's having right beliefs based on God's word, but it's also having right behavior that's consistent with those beliefs. And so before we get any further, you might want to ask yourself, how do I approach God's word? Well, when I read it, am I simply judging it by my own moral standards? Or when I, when I look at it, am I looking for something in there to defend predetermined conclusions that I've come up with on my own, that I'm passionate about, but that God maybe is not so passionate about? When we're exposed to the truths of Scripture, how do we react? If we want to have a solid anchor as a church, then we've got to humble ourselves under God's Word. We've got to allow it to transform our entire lives. And as I've said, our ethos is it's already who we are, but it's also who we want to be. See, we already are a group of people who are humbling ourselves before God's sacred Word. But it's something that we're striving for. It's something that we must work at in order to make it a greater reality in our community. And so the next question is, how do we do that? How do we cultivate humble orthodoxy in our community? And in a sense, what we're asking is, <coughs> excuse me, how do we grow in our understanding of, of what we believe, orthodoxy, and then how do we continually allow these beliefs to shape and transform our lives? That's the humility part. And I think one way to answer this is by pressing home the point that, that we're all called to cultivate this individually. And this is true. All of us, if we're Christians, should be growing in our understanding of who God is and what we believe. We all have a responsibility, and all of us should be working as hard as we can to incorporate these truths into our lives. And this is why we read the Bible. And this is why we pray. And, and this is why we, we listen to sermons and read books. Individually, we want to grow in our understanding of, of what we believe and how that should affect the way that we live. But I think another way to answer this question, um, even, I guess, probably partially, is, is by emphasizing the fact that, that it's something that's cultivated corporately. See, cultivating humble orthodoxy is a communal task. And this is where the passage that we read earlier comes in. Ephesians tells us that, that God has provided the resources to help us cultivate not only right beliefs, not only keep us on the right track in what we believe, but also right practices. God hasn't left us alone to figure him out. And in fact, 
Ephesians 4 is arguing that, that a community of believers develops a right understanding of who he is and a right understanding of how we should live, specifically when we function as a body. And so Paul shows us that, that there's this process to how the body is supposed to work or, or how the body was designed to function. And then he shows us what happens when a body functions this way. And so that's what I want to look at. And the first thing is, is how does the body, how was the body designed to work? How did God design us to live together as a group of people? And what Paul tells us is that the process of this body growth, it really begins with the head of the body. And so in chapter 1 of, uh, of Ephesians, in verse 24, Paul explains that God made Christ, God made Jesus to be the head of the body. He's the ruler of our church. He's the ruler of our community. And what Paul tells us in chapter 4, verses 7 through 10, is that, that this head of the body has made a provision for the growth of the body. He tells us that Christ provides spiritual gifts to each member in order to help the entire body grow. And so he begins by explaining that, that Christ provides what I'm calling grace gifts to all people. He says in verse 7, but to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gifts. And the each one here is referring to the Christians that Paul was writing to. Uh, it's referring to Paul himself, and it's, re it's referring to Christians throughout history, including you and me. And Paul says each member of the body has been given what he refers to as a gift of grace, or grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. And usually when we think about grace, we think about it in reference to salvation. And so we say things like, we're saved by grace, and God's given us grace. And that's true. And in fact, Paul's arguing in chapter 2 that each part of, of this body has been saved by grace. But Paul's not talking about salvation here. And in fact, he's talking about uh, Christ giving us grace gifts. And we typically refer to these grace gifts as spiritual gifts. See, we've all been given spiritual gifts. And in other passages, Paul explains a little bit more detail, like what those actually are. But here his emphasis is on the truth that we've all been given a gift that's useful for, that, for helping one another grow. And in keeping with this analogy of the physical body, uh, these spiritual gifts would be something like the muscles or the, the ligaments of the body. And so I, I guess I want to ask you, do you realize what you've been given? Do you understand that Christ himself, by his grace, chose to equip you with with grace. Do you recognize that you were designed to play a part in the growth of, of the, the body of Christ, in the growth of this specific community? If we want to cultivate humble orthodoxy in our community, then what we see here is that it can't be done in isolation. It can't be done apart from the body of Christ. See, if we want to keep ourselves from drifting as a church, and we want to keep growing as a community of Christ followers, then we have to understand the importance of the role of the whole body. Each of us has a role to play. Each of us has a role to play in helping us understand what it looks like to help one another grow and what it looks like to help one another understand who God is and, and what he's done for us. Tim Keller, a, a few weeks ago in our Gospel and Life curriculum, says that we can't know God changed deeply or impact our world 
apart from community. But not only does Jesus provide grace gifts to all, he, he, we see here that he provides leadership gifts to some. And these would be like the personal trainers of the body. Paul explains this in verse 11. He says that, that after Christ ascended into heaven, he says he gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. And these are the leadership roles that are exercised in the church. He says there are apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastor-teachers. And Christ gave them specifically to prepare the body to grow. And to prepare the body, each individual part, to help one another grow. And at this point, it's kind of helpful, I think, to distinguish between two kinds of gifts. There's foundational gifts, and then there's equipping gifts. And these foundational gifts are the gifts of apostle and prophet. And they were given to certain men at certain times in order to lay the foundation of the church. But once that foundation had been laid, these gifts were sort of discontinued. And so that leaves the church today with another kind of gift, gift equipping gifts. And it's in this context, um, that's what, what's, what's mainly being referred to here. They're given at all times and they're given at all places where the church exists. And these are gifts that, that, that we see here. And understandably, Christ provides these gifts not so that, you know, not for any other reason except for to prepare us to grow. And so this is the next part of the process. Christ provides spiritual gifts to all his people, and then leaders prepare these spiritual gifts. And so in the same way that, that a body needs to be prepared and strengthened if it's to grow, a spiritual body needs to be prepared and strengthened. And it's these leadership gift roles that, that play a crucial part in cultivating humble orthodoxy in our community. This isn't just a group of people who are trying to figure things out on our own. God in his wisdom has give, given gifted leaders to us to help the body to grow and to help it stay on track and to keep it from drifting. He's provided them to help us learn orthodoxy and orthopraxy or right living. And so Paul says in verse 12 that, that these leaders were given for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. And equipping simply means preparing. They're preparing the rest of the body for the work of ministry. That's the orthopraxy part. That's the, that's the doing part. Other translations say works of service. And they're preparing the rest of the body until we all come to a unity of the faith and a unity of the knowledge of the Son of God. That's orthodoxy. And they're equipping us to be capable of helping one another grow in our understanding of who God is and what he's done for us in Christ and how that should affect the way that we live. And so Paul mentions the, the first two, apostles and prophets. And in addition to being kind of foundational gifts of the church, these are also equipping gifts. Otherwise, it doesn't seem to make sense in this context. And so those who have the gift of apostle are, they're gifted at going out and planting churches. And so these people, they're helping the body uh, to grow and expand. And then there's the role of the prophet. And this is a little bit more difficult to understand because some people think that this is the person who gets up here and, and speaks God's word to us. But it doesn't seem to make sense because we also have this pastor-teacher gift. And so it doesn't seem to make sense to have two different things doing the same exact thing. And so in my understanding of the prophet, this is a person who's gifted at what I call biblical wisdom. 
And so they're able to bring Scripture to bear on a specific problem or a specific situation. They're able to speak truths into the lives of people. And so you might be familiar with this. Somebody uh, in your life, you may have been struggling before, and, and somebody may have come into your life as a Christian, and they've spoken truth at just the right time. It's a prophet. And these people are preparing the body to grow by, by pushing it when it needs pushed and encouraging it when it needs encouraged. And then there's this, there's this gift of evangelist that Paul talks about. And this is the person focused on preparing the body to grow numerically. And people that have this gift, have, they've been given the unique ability by God to communicate the gospel in such a way that people actually respond and people, re- and people repent. And because of this, they're, they're uniquely qualified to help all of us learn what it looks like to share our faith, to take what we say we believe and actually communicate it to the rest of the world. And then finally, Paul mentions this role of pastor-teacher. And the pastor-teacher is this person who's gifted at teaching the Scriptures, and they're gifted at caring for people, and they're gifted at, at leading people to take the next step in their Christian faith. And I think you, you might be wondering, how does the pastor-teacher, how do they equip the body? How do they prepare the body? How, how do they lead the body and train the body? And I think the New Testament really answers this uh, in two parts. First, our pastor teachers, they train us through their instruction. God has called them to preach the word. And, and Paul makes the same point in, in, in 2 Timothy chapter 4. He says to Timothy, who's a pastor, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instructions. They, they train us by, by first and foremost telling us what God's word says and what that means for how we should live. But this isn't just something that they do once a week. He says that they're to be ready in season and out of season. They're living life with us. They're rebuking and exhorting us with great patience and instruction. They're teaching us God's word formally in settings like this, but then they're also doing it informally as they they live out their lives together with us. And this is a great gift from God. And, And so they teach us through their instruction. But then they also do, so they they train us through their demonstration. They're examples to us of of what it looks like to live life as a Christian. And so if you look at the qualifications of a leader in the church, they're just saying they're, they're, they're things that all Christians should be doing. They're simply to be men and women of character. And so that when we look at them, we have a tangible picture of what it looks like to live our lives as Christ followers. You know, since my wife and I have been a part of this church, I've been so grateful to EBF because they embrace this view of leadership. They see this as the primary task of their leaders. And this is why as a church we spend so much time on Sunday mornings devoting ourselves to hearing God's word and working our way through the Bible. And this is why we pay someone to spend a significant portion of their week learning what God's word says and then telling us what it says, and encouraging us to live like this. And this is why we've emphasized leadership training this year. Now, I don't know how many of you noticed this, but, but many of our elders and pastors, they're, they're, they're sacrificing a significant portion of their time to build into the leaders of our church. Because apart from our leaders, and apart from the health of our leaders, we can't grow in humble orthodoxy. 
Uh, the only way for us to live and, and to cultivate humble orthodoxy in our church is if we live as a body. And the only way that we can do that is if, if we allow our leaders to prepare us to help each other grow. And so as we think about these gifts, if you think about these equipping gifts, what this might mean for some of you is that you need to step up and take responsibility. Some of you know that you've been given gifts, and some of you have been Christians for, for a long time, and you've developed wisdom. And so I wonder, are you sharing that with the rest of us? We need you. This passage is calling you to exercise your gifts, and it's calling you, you to grow in humble orthodoxy. And what this might mean for, for others of you is that, that you need to step down and exercise humility. You might need to recognize that, that you as, the party of the, uh, as a part of the body of Christ, you need to hit the gym. That you need to get involved with a personal trainer. See, you need to allow yourself to be prepared for service. You need to examine yourself to see where your heart is and to see whether or not you're living consistently as a Christian and consistently with, with what we call orthodoxy. And as a community, we want to be a people who are continually growing in our understanding of God and what he's done for us in Christ. And we want to be people who are continually allowing our beliefs to shape how we live. And we can't do that apart from the body and apart from the training of our leaders. And we can't do it unless we individually and corporately are, are, are studying God's word and memorizing God's word and letting God's word shape how we live. And so I wonder, when you look at your life, are, are, is it growing in its reflection of what you believe? This is the only way that humble orthodoxy is going to define us as a community, is if you do it. See, leaders can't make humble orthodoxy happen. You actually have to respond. So, so what happens when a church lives this way, when a church starts cultivating humble orthodoxy in its community? What happens? What does that look like? Paul tells us that, that when the body's functioning as a body, and when leaders are equipping the rest of the body, and when leaders are teaching the rest of the body, to, to live out God's word, that amazing things start to happen. He says that the body will grow in unity. Verse 13 says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. As our pastors teach us, and as our leaders teach us and encourage us to, to, to live lives of humble orthodoxy, Paul says that we experience a unity of the faith and we experience a unity of the knowledge of the Son of God. We experience unity around not all the things that, that define us externally. Not, not all of the things and passions that we have. We're, we're not all united here around the fact that we like urban living. You know, we're not all united around the fact that we all like to you know, spend time outdoors. What unites us, we're all so different. We all come from so many different cultures and backgrounds. What unites us is our relationship with Jesus and what we say we believe about God. And so as we grow together as a church in humble orthodoxy, what happens is that we grow in, uh, in this unity of faith that Paul talks about. This is a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing when people from different cultures are able to connect and to, and to, to be united around what they say they believe with, with so many different people. 
And as we commit ourselves to cultivating humble orthodoxy, we experience this unexplainable unity. And we see that humble orthodoxy results in a progressive maturity. Paul continues in verse 13 saying, To a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As Christians, God's plan for us is that we be saved. That's our justification. We're being legally made right with God. But, but part of being saved means sanctification. or growing into the image of Christ. And this is what Paul's talking about here when he refers to the, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As we begin cultivating humble orthodoxy, Paul tells us that we, we grow more and more into the image of Christ. As we begin allowing our leaders to prepare us through the preaching of the word, our lives begin to change. We grow in our sanctifications. Our attitudes and our actions continually begin reflecting that of Christ. This process produces a holy people. It produces people who know how to love others. It produces people who live with integrity and character and who emulate their Savior. And this is what we want as a community. And Paul, Paul also explains that, that when the church functions this way, it grows in discernment. It's a group of people who are able to distinguish truth from error. And so in verse 14, he says, as a result, we're no longer, as a result of this process, we're no longer to be children tossed by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. We don't drift. This body is not easily deceived by the latest Christian heresy. Instead, they're able to speak the truth in love. See, they have a firm grasp on the truths of Scripture, and then they're capable of speaking it to one another in love. They understand how God wants us to live, and then they notice when they're confronted with error. Verses 14 and 15 are, are really quite amazing. Verse 14 tells us what the body of Christ is not. They're not a bunch of suckers. They're not carried about by every new teaching. When they turn on the TV and they're told by the TV preacher to send in their gift of 50 bucks and God will double their money, they don't go reaching for their wallet. They don't go reaching for their purse. They're able to see it for what it is. And when they're confronted with the culture that says, what's true for you, well, that's not necessarily true for everybody. They're not deceived. They're not suckers, but they are truth tellers. Verse 15 says they're able to speak the truth in love. They know what they believe, and they know why they believe it. And then they're able to speak it to one another in love. They're able to boldly but lovingly see the errors in the lives of their brothers and sisters. And then they're able to speak truth. They care enough about one another to confront one another when they need to be confronted. These are people that have been prepared by their pastors and church leaders to speak the truth in love. They know what they believe, and they know why they believe it. And they're, and they're working that truth into their lives. And isn't this what we want as a community? Isn't this what we want to be? Isn't this what we want to portray ourselves to uh, the watching world? Don't we want to be people who live our lives and have people that are surrounding us who care enough about us to tell us when we're doing the wrong thing and who are able to know what God's Word says well enough that they're able to see when our lives aren't connecting with that truth. See, the, the thing that's so sad to me is that in most churches, 
What we see is the exact opposite. Instead of truth-telling, most churches are filled with people who have, they have no idea what their Bibles say. They have no idea what they believe. And as a result, they buy into anything that presents itself as religious. And so they're suckers, and they're drifters. They don't know what they believe, and they don't know why they believe it, and they're not working that truth into their lives. And they sure as, they really can't help you learn that, what it looks like to live how God wants you to live. And so I wonder, as you're exposed to this picture, how, do you, how does your personal life compare? Do you see yourself as capable enough of speaking the truth and love to people? Or do you find yourself continually distracted by the latest religious teaching or the latest Christian heresy? Do you find yourself growing more and more into the image of Christ? Or do you see yourself as continually just failing at the same old sins, continually allowing the same old things to master you? And when you're confronted with the error in the lives of others, are you able to speak truth to them? See, the only way for us to guard against drifting in our church and the only way for us to cultivate humble orthodoxy is by each individual member knowing the truth and each individual member living the truth and then each individual member speaking the truth in love. As a church, we long to be people who carry out God's rescue mission in Evanston. We want to be people who who are involved in reconciling the world to Christ and redeeming this fallen world. But the only way that we're going going to succeed is if we have an anchor. And the only way we're going to be faithful in our generation is if we cling to the true and living faith revealed to us in God's word. And if we allow that word to shape our lives. And so let's all commit ourselves to individually and corporately developing humble orthodoxy in our lives. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this word. I thank you for providing this church, uh, for providing so many gifted people, and for providing us for all with grace to help one another and encourage one another to grow and live the way that you want us to live and believe the things that you want us to believe. Let's pray that you'd help us as a church. Help us to keep from drifting. Help us to stay committed to what we say we believe. Pray this in your name. Amen.